Good morning, everyone. That is so cool. They got, those guys bring this podium out and set it exactly here because they've got these little tapes right here in the front, so it's got to go there. Um, you know, 30 years in the classroom, nobody moved my podium except me. So that's cool. You know, um, I was thinking about this as Pastor Daniel was sharing with us uh, the need to know, which is what we call what he just did. And we really hope that we're communicating to all of you just how much we love you in the Lord. Um, Doctrine's important. It's very important. We're going to be getting into a lot of doctrine as we take a look at these three verses in the book of Ephesians. But doctrine doesn't do anything unless you also have the love of God in your life. So I want to make sure that everybody is picking up on that as well. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and go in your Bibles, uh, whether you have an app or whether you have, like me, a printed copy, or we have pews with Bibles in front of you there. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. And I did not introduce myself. I'm Vance Furtado. For those of you who haven't met me, I'm a volunteer pastor here at Resurrection Church, a retired school teacher, but I also now get to serve the Lord. One of the ways is doing things like this. So we're going to call as our message for this morning the believer's birthright. The believer's birthright. And there are three parts to this birthright as we're going to see packed into just these three verses. This is one reason why we're taking more time as we look through uh, Paul's opening blast of all of these spiritual blessings we have in Christ, because there's so many of them, and they're so in-depth that we don't want to rush through that. Now, last week, Pastor Daniel did our introduction for Ephesians, and he told us, that uh, reminded us of what Paul wrote, that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And what we're going to see, beginning with this week's message and the later messages, what some of those spiritual blessings are. Spiritual blessings that we begin to experience now, but which we will experience even to a greater degree once we're with the Lord, experiencing much more what eternal life is. Getting all of these blessings in Christ should make us feel like this picture of a kid after Halloween. Can you imagine this kid coming down off of the sugar detox after somehow they managed to consume all that? The nice thing about our spiritual blessings in Christ, though, there's no detox. There's no downside to them, okay? And... What's also cool about this, and I can't claim credit for this, this was a pastor by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh preacher, but he pointed out in his study in Ephesians that when you look carefully at these opening verses of chapter 1, there's individual blessings that actually come from each member of the Trinity. So, for example, verses 4 to 6, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning, that's blessings from the Father, all right? Specifically, that come from God the Father through his Son to us. A lot of those blessings deal with election. So that's going to be a key word. Then verses 7 to 12, which future sermons are going to get into that, that's blessings from the Son. All right? Key word with that is redemption. That we have basically been 
redeemed or we have been bought for, paid for by the blood of Jesus and we are now his. We are his possession. And then finally, verses 13 and 14, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. And the Holy Spirit, when we come to know the Lord, enters into our hearts and our lives. He is the guarantee. His presence in our lives is a permanent guarantee, a seal, as it were, that we are now forever going to be God's children. That's cool, all right? Now, our today's topic again is our birthright in Christ, which we received from the Father when we came to know Jesus. Birthrights, that's not something we talk about very often in our country, but it can be very, very important elsewhere. For example, there's an old movie, some of you may have seen it at some point, called The Court Jester. And in this movie, there is a child that has on the baby's bottom this purple pimpernel. So I don't know if you can see that, but see the baby there? And the actor Danny Kaye is kind of giving you a little flash of the baby's bottom, and there's a little purple flower on the baby's tush. That flower is important because that's proof that that little baby is actually the next ruler of England, which leads me to wonder, would Queen Elizabeth have one of those, you think? I don't know. It's a made-believe movie, okay? Moving on. Our birthright as believers in Christ includes three facts. Fact number one, we have been chosen by the Father in Christ. Fact number two, we have been adopted by the Father in Christ. And fact number three, we bring praise to the Father through Christ. Okay? So let's now take a look at verse 4, and I'm actually going to read beginning at verse 3 to get the context, but fact number one, we have been chosen by the Father in Christ. So here we go, starting with verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Even, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. All right. Chosen. It is a completed action. In the Greek language, this is not true just of this verb, but of all the other verbs in verses 4 to 6, they are all completed actions. In the Greek, it's called an aorist tense. It means it is a done deal. It's settled. God has done this already. And the deal is, when it comes to election, there is nothing we can do for it. We do nothing to earn this. God, in his sovereignty, chose us to be saved. Scripture is absolutely clear about that. The late theologian John Calvin wrote centuries ago, he said this, God's election is free and beats down and annihilates all the worthiness, works, and virtues of men. In other words, again, we cannot earn this. Our attitude should be, as we ponder this doctrine, 
is what's expressed in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, it says this, For thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. In other words, we have no bragging rights. Absolutely not. What we have is a relationship with God because God in his sovereignty and in his love chose us to be part of his family. Now, this idea of God choosing It's not just in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament too. So for example, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the Lord there speaks directly to Abraham, or at that time his name was Abraham, and says, I am going to choose you and I am going to make a people out of you. And at that time, Abraham had no children. He and his wife Sarai, it would be many years before they would even have the son that eventually God would basically take the line of promise through Abraham, through his son, and eventually all the way down to Jesus. That was God in his sovereignty. He chose Abraham. God chose David. David was the youngest of all the sons of Jesse. He was kind of like what we would call the runt of the litter. God chose him. God even chose the nation of Israel. And they didn't deserve it. The Lord says to them in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 6 through part of 8, it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But... It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors and brought you out with a mighty hand. Again, God made the sovereign decision. Now, one other thing, coming back to Ephesians, when did God choose us? Exactly. Before the foundation, before the creation of the world. Now, I'm not going to get into the debate about how old the universe is, but it seems to be pretty old. But even before the universe existed, before the events of Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, he already chose us. Now that'll blow your mind if you think about it. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Where does free will come into this? Because, Vance, don't we have a free will? Don't we make choices as well? We do. But at the same time, Scripture also says that God is sovereign. God's in charge. We have free will too. So, Vance, what is it? Is it God's sovereignty or our free will? And the answer is yes. Because God teaches both. Excuse me, the Bible teaches both. 
So for example, in Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, the Lord is speaking through Moses to Pharaoh, and the Lord is saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. In other words, it's my choice. And then in the very next chapter, in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11, we're told there that anyone who comes to the Lord will be saved. Great illustration of this is uh, credited to the English Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. According to Spurgeon's story, imagine we're coming up to heaven and we're approaching the gates of heaven and the Lord has this huge banner over the gates and the banner says, whosoever will may come. And then as we go through the gates of heaven, as we're walking into heaven, if we happen to turn back and look at the back side of the banner, it says there, chosen from the foundation of the world. Scripture teaches both. Now, there's two reasons why the doctrine of election is so important. The first is, it gives us assurance and it gives us peace. I like how David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Welsh preacher, explained it. He said, there is no doctrine, speaking of the doctrine of election, which is as comforting as this. My security depends on this fact that I am what I am solely and entirely because of the grace of God. And if you have trouble with that, read carefully Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, because those scriptures tell us that there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now, the other reason why election is important is this. It should lead to spiritual growth. If somebody camps out on this doctrine of election and just says, so to speak, well, this is awesome and wonderful. I don't have to do a blessed thing. And they don't do a blessed thing but sit on their blessed assurance. They're missing the idea. Because notice, coming back to verse 4, right after Paul says we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. Both of those ideas focus on spiritual growth. To be holy means to be set apart. We're told, according to places like Leviticus 19.2, the Lord says, I am holy, meaning the Lord has absolutely nothing to do with sin. He is set apart, therefore you should be holy. Election should lead us, basically, to want to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, which means we want to avoid sin. Does that mean we're going to be sinless? No, we're going to still mess up. But nevertheless, the focus of our life is to try to live pleasing to the Lord, and that also comes into the other idea, and that is to be blameless before him. Another way to say blameless is without blemish. Every animal that they sacrificed under that old Levitical system, one requirement was whatever kind of offering it had to be without blemish. It could not have a physical deformity. If the animal was missing a leg, missing an eye, missing an ear, they could not or they were absolutely not supposed to sacrifice it. Well, in Christ, 
in his righteousness with which we are clothed, according to Romans 13, 14. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are blameless. We have Jesus' righteousness. That's why Scripture says there is there now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're supposed to live out that position. So being chosen, yeah, it's a great sense of security, but it should also lead us to live a lifestyle that's pleasing to the Lord, and that involves holiness, and that involves choices, living a life pleasing to the Lord. I like how Peter puts it in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says this, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who calls you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. To summarize this, here it is. Election brings privilege and responsibility. So the first fact We are chosen by the Father in Christ. Now, let me pause for just a second before we go on to the next fact. The fact that you are chosen in God means you are not junk. God sent his son to die for you because you, child of God, are precious in his sight. You need to let that sink in. He chose you because he loves you. And that will never, ever, ever change. The second fact, we have been adopted by the Father in Christ. Let's pick up again at the very end of verse 4, but then read verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. First word, predestined. Boy, you could get into a lot of church fights over just that word predestined. Believe it or not, it only shows up, predestined, predestination, only shows up, the Greek word, six times in the entire New Testament. That's it. But the deal is, in all six of those times, Predestined is always something that God alone does. No one else does it. So, for example, where it shows up in Acts 4.28, there Peter is just talking about and presenting the gospel and pointing out that everything that happened to Jesus leading up to our salvation and his death on the cross and his resurrection was all according to God's plan. It was all destined. It was all set forth. It was going to happen that way. I like how the Lord Jesus put it when he was talking to his disciples in the upper room. John 15, 16, it says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Get the idea again? Everything God does is for a purpose. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. 
Now, what was the Father's motivation? Why did he choose us, predestine us? Did you catch those two words at the very end of verse 4? He did it in love. As Daniel mentioned last week, in the Greek, verses 13 to 14 are all one sentence. It's like Paul didn't have a place to stop, okay? He just kind of let it flow full force as he's going on about all these spiritual blessings, naming one after another, after another, after another, as they pour out of him. Well, that creates problems for Bible translators because they have to make a decision. And one of the decisions is where that little phrase, in love appears, is it connected to election. In other words, is it connected to verse 4, where God chose us before the foundation of the world in love. Some Bibles translate it that way. Others, like the ESV, which I'm following here, have the in love connected to verse 5. And that's what I'm going with. In other words, when God chose us, when God predestined us in his son to get saved, his motivation, his bottom line was because he loved us. It's agape love. It's Agape was kind of a colorless word in Greek until the New Testament took that word and said that word captures the love God has for us. It's selfless, it's sacrificial, it never stops. That was God's motivation. And get this, God loved us even when we were totally unlovable. Now, some of us, myself included, have had the privilege to be in the labor room when our children were being born. Now, obviously, mothers, you were there already. So I'm talking to others of us, okay? But when that baby first comes out, my old childhood pastor, Jack Peacock, who spoke from this same place up here, used to say, yep, yeah, that's a baby, When the baby first comes out, they're kind of mushy. They're kind of wrinkly. They're reddish. And they scream. And they poop. But nevertheless, we love them, don't we? Nevertheless, despite the fact that Scripture says we were enemies of God, he loved us. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 10, it says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if, while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? That's pretty cool. Let's kind of talk just a little more about this whole word adoption. First of all, it was hinted at in the Old Testament. So, for example, when God set up what's called the Davidic covenant, when he made these promises to David, 
saying, David, you're not going to build a house for me. You're not going to build my temple because you've shed a lot of blood in all of your wars. But I'm going to build your house, David. Your son, Solomon, is going to build my house, and God calls Solomon his son. He adopted him. He also, the Lord adopted the nation of Israel. In Exodus 4.22 and much later, Hosea 11.1, both those places, God calls Israel his son. But then when you take this idea of adoption and you bring it into the New Testament times, especially with the Apostle Paul, that's when the doctrine really blossoms. Because Paul knew Roman culture very well. And the Romans practiced adoption. The deal was this, under Roman culture, and Pastor Daniel was telling me this earlier, and I had kind of forgotten, and he, he reminded me of it. Under Roman culture, a Roman father could disown a natural-born son. I don't want you anymore. You're out of here. But if that Roman father adopted someone into their family, they could never disown them. They were permanent. All those old ties were severed. Think about this for just a moment. When we were adopted into God's family, the fact that we were children of disobedience, according to Ephesians chapter 2, we're no longer that way. We are in Christ. We're no longer under the power of the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. We're now in Christ. We have a new position as children of God. Take a look at this. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive, what's that next word? Adoption. As sons and daughters, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. In other words, the Holy Spirit is proof of our adoption. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We'll come back to that heir of God idea in just a moment. Years ago, when I, my mom used to take me to films on Saturday. That was kind of like special time for me and for her. And I remember her taking me to this really long old movie called Ben-Hur. Anybody actually have seen that movie? Okay, a number of us have. It's long, okay? I didn't remember much of it as a kid, but one thing that stuck in my head was there is a part in the film where this prince of Israel, Judah Ben-Hur, is falsely accused of a terrible crime. And part of his sentence is he is forced to work as a galley slave, a rower on a Roman warship. Basically, it's a sentence of death. Nobody lives long on the galleys just rowing like that because of the brutality. But then the ship is in battle. The ship is sunk, but Judah somehow escapes. And not only does he escape, but he actually saves the life of the Roman general. And he won't let this general kill himself. They both get rescued, and the general decides he's going to adopt Judah as his natural, as basically his new son. 
And there's a scene in the film where as Judah is walking behind the general, he looks down and he looks at the galley slaves. The guys chained to the oars, that's where he was for years. We're no longer chained to the oars, guys. God's adopted us into his family. We have a new birthright. And not only that, we have a new home and we have property as children of God. Check this out. Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 to 29. In Matthew 19, the Lord had just shooken up the disciples because there was a conversation between Jesus and this rich young ruler, and the Lord told him, look, if you want to follow me, which is a wonderful thing, and I love you, but your wealth is in the way. You need to give up your wealth and then choose and follow me, and the rich young man couldn't do it. And then the Lord said to his disciples, how difficult it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. That shook up the disciples. And they said, well, then who's going to end up getting saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible, but all things are possible with God. And then look what happens, Matthew 19, verse 27. Then Peter said, see, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? I love Peter. It gets right to the point. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. Obviously, we're talking about the 12 disciples here, minus, of course, Judas, the bad guy. Judging the 12 tribes of the house of Israel. And everyone, that's us, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children and lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. A hundredfold is 10,000%. That's what happens when we get adopted. What's part of that property? Go with me over to, well, actually, it's going to be on the screen but I'm going to have to read it out of my Bible. Revelation chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. In Revelation 21, it's where the new heavens and the new earth are presented, which is our forever home, along with the new Jerusalem, which is going to be absolutely glorious, our forever city, in God's presence forever. And then the Lord speaking, it's actually the Father. The Father speaking to the Apostle John Revelation 21, verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water from the spring of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So, fact number one. We're chosen by the Father in Christ. Fact number two, we're adopted by the Father in Christ. And by the way, there's a purpose to that adoption. Coming back to Ephesians, the last part of verse 5, it says, according to the purpose of his will. We are chosen, we are adopted, 
And guys, both of it is to fulfill his will. To fulfill his will means to fulfill the Lord's purposes he intended for us. We are saved to serve. That's why just the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right after Paul tells us that we are saved by grace plus nothing, it then says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We get our English word poem from workmanship, poema. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, each and every one of us were chosen by God. Each and every one of us were adopted by God, and we were adopted by God according to the purpose of his will so that we can then serve the Lord with whatever purpose he's intended. Are you serving the Lord? A lot of Christians are, but if you're not, guys, you're missing something. Because God saved us so that we could bring glory to him by the service we do for him. The third fact, we bring praise to the Father through Christ. That's verse 6. So let's look at verse 6, Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. The beloved is Jesus. That's why it's capitalized in your Bibles. Why do we know? How do we know that the beloved is Jesus? Because twice, God the Father calls God the Son beloved. He did it when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved Son. I have chosen him. He did it again on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus and James and John and Peter were on top of that mountain and the cloud descended according to Mark chapter 9, verse 7. That's one account. And then the Father spoke out of the cloud, terrifying the disciples, but he said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. We're in Christ, aren't we? If we're believers, guess what that also means? We're in his beloved. He loves His son, he also loves us because spiritually speaking, our identity is now in Christ. I like how R.W. Dale, a preacher from a long time ago, he wrote this. Christ dwells forever in the infinite love of God. As we are in Christ, the love of God for Christ is in a wonderful manner ours. He loves Jesus. He'll always love Jesus, his son. And because we are now in the Lord, in Christ, he loves us. The deal is, we can bring praise to God, to the Father, depending on how we live. We can bring a testimony to the Lord. And there's two ways, guys, that we can bring praise to the Lord by our testimony. The first way is individually. 
As we individually live for the Lord, we can bring praise and honor to him. Great example of this was Paul. Because if there was anybody that never should have gotten saved, quite frankly, it was Paul. If you remember his story, this was a guy who tried to destroy the church. And one of the last letters that Paul wrote, 1 Timothy, he wrote this, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Here is a trustworthy statement, excuse me, a trustworthy statement saying, deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for this very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Bottom line, Paul's salvation proves this. There's nobody too far gone not to get saved. If God saved Paul, he can save anybody. That's what Paul is saying. So we can bring praise to God by our testimony. As people see how we're changed as we walk with the Lord, they're going to ask questions. They're going to wonder, what happened to them? That's when we can bring praise to God. But there's another way too, guys. And quite frankly, all the times I have read Ephesians, I did not pick up on it until just this last week, working on this message. The other way that we can bring praise to God is as a body, as a community. Go with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. I want you to see this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. If 1 Timothy was one of Paul's last letters, this is one of his earliest letters written to a church that he had just started and wasn't able to invest as much time into their spiritual development as he wanted. So then he had to write this letter to help them. Read with me what it says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. I lost my place. Oh, there it is. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need to say nothing. For they themselves, they being the non-Christians, the pagans, they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In other words, as Paul and as his traveling companions moved on from Thessalonica and began to share the gospel in Athens and Corinth and other places, and as people were getting saved, people were saying, you know what? We've heard this before. We've heard how this gospel changes people before. You guys were in Thessalonica, weren't you? Man, those guys are on fire for Jesus. You can see it. They're changing their entire community. So they were bringing praise to God as an entire group by how they lived, by how the Lord had changed them. Fellow 
Res Church people, if ever there is a need for people in Christian bodies to live as Christians, it's now. There is so much hurt out there. COVID, vaccines, politics. People are looking for answers. They're looking for people who are changed. And as we love each other, as we love the Lord, as we practice those one another's that we're told repeatedly in Scripture, that's going to draw people. Like the old praise song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Doctrine's important. Shoot, I studied doctrine a lot in seminary and since then. But it's love that draws people to Jesus. So we also bring praise to God by displaying his glory in Jesus. God's glory. Wow. (laughs) His glory is his splendor, his beauty, his honor, his power, all of which are perfectly, perfectly revealed in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the exact imprint representation of his father you want to know what god the father is like look carefully at jesus well guess what as we get changed as we grow in our walk with the lord he's changing us he's transforming us to resemble his son great passage for this is second corinthians three eighteen. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's called a divine passive, meaning this. God the Father is transforming us. We can't do this. We decide, oh, I'm going to be like Jesus. Good luck. You won't make it. This has to be something that God works in us as we yield and as we abide in Christ. We are being transformed into the same image, meaning we're looking more and more like Jesus, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, we bring praise to God as we become looking more like Jesus and as we yield our lives to the working of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us when we became a child of God. That's another way we bring praise to the Lord as we look more and more like him. So, to recap, our birthright as believers, looking at carefully at these verses, three facts. Number one, we have been chosen by the Father in Christ. Number two, We have been adopted by the Father in Christ. And number three, we bring praise to the Father through Christ. Now, a couple of final applications as we wrap this up. First of all, for those of us who know the Lord, let me speak to those of us who already know Jesus for a moment. Given this rich spiritual birthright, none of which we earned, what are you going to do for your Father? What are you going to do for his son? 
Well, I'll tell you two things immediately we could do and we need to do. Praise, gratitude, and service. God saved us to serve and glorify him. Non-Christian, let me speak to you for just a moment. Why are you waiting to come to Jesus? We've just seen these wonderful spiritual blessings in three verses of what is available to you if you come to Jesus. Now is the day of salvation. I can't think of a better reason to enter into a relationship with God than the fact that He loves you and He wants to know you. We're going to give people a chance to respond. If the Lord's been working on your heart for whatever it is, come forward. We'd love to be able to pray with you as Nate leaves us in a final song and then Pastor Daniel will uh, close out our service. You come as God leads.